Welcome to Side Effects, Effect versus Affect. It's hard to know the difference. At McGowan Brabender, our goal is to provoke you to think differently about employee benefits, your employees, and the status quo. That's why it's Side Effects with an A. Join me, Kenzie McEvely, an MB co-host, and one of the industry's brightest guests to dive deep into the process of good employee benefits. Let's get started. From the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution to the digital revolution, we've come a long way. Experts are saying the next phase we will enter will be called the experience age. Customers now have more choices than ever before, and they're looking for phenomenal service and an overall effortless experience. Some companies prior to 2020 may have been slow to embrace the digital age, but that's no longer the case. In terms of the pandemic and global restrictions, the race to digital is now even more critical than ever. Simply having access to information is not always helpful or relevant. Doctors, for example, have to frequently deal with patients that have self-diagnosed based on their symptoms from an online source. Telemedicine has taken over the world and isn't slowing down. Today, we have two Kettering Health Network physicians joining us to discuss lifestyle medicine, how COVID-19 has affected people's habits, and what the future of telemedicine looks like. Please welcome Dr. Harvey Hahn, a cardiologist who earned his medical degree from Loma Linda University in California and completed his cardiology fellowship at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Hahn served as an assistant professor, laboratory director, and assistant director for the Cardiology Fellowship Training Program at UC. He is a member of five heart boards, associations, and societies, and a fellow in the American College of Cardiology. We would also like to introduce you to Dr. Peter Nelson, a board-certified internal medicine physician with over 10 years of experience. Dr. Nelson also completed his degree at Loma Linda University and finished two residencies at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. His scope of services includes preventive medicine, lifestyle medicine, internal medicine, adult and geriatric medical treatment, and primary care. Let's welcome them to the show. Alrighty, hello everyone. Anne-Marie, thank you for joining me today. Great to be here, Kenzie. Thank you so much. I'm and so we excited. have, yes, Dr. Hahn and Dr. Nelson in our immersion center. We're stepping out of the studio a little bit today. So thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's great for you to be here. So originally when we started to think about, you know, what could we have you both on the show and what could we talk about, we really were focused on COVID and um, what that means to claims. And of course, you know, we represent employers and their health plans. And when we had our pre-call with you, we learned that it's actually a little too early to tell what that's going to mean and what that looks like. You're not really seeing too many patterns yet in the claims data and, and what you what you are um, forecasting. So um, we still are interested though. What can you tell us about COVID in your specialties and in your areas of practice? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that has... Uh, hit us of COVID-19 is that um, the outpatient clinic, we've gone to telemedicine, so there's kind of a way to digitally, remotely access and interact with your patients, which has been really interesting. I think that's not going to go away. Um, on the more serious side, though, I think a lot of patients have been scared of coming to the hospital mm -hmm. due to COVID, and they've been delaying presentation to the ER for things like possible stroke or possible heart attack. So there's uh, people have been coming a little bit more sick um, as of late due to the COVID epidemic. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think in primary care, certainly there's a 
subsect of patients that literally will not leave their house for anything, and they will show up very sick either to the office or the hospital. And then everyone else is, I think, pretty readily come to the office when they need to come to the office. Uh, I think the one area that's been a little different with COVID is uh, with colon cancer screening. So there has been an easy shift from I don't want to go get a colonoscopy to give me one of the at-home tests and uh, shifting that way. So we're still screening for colon cancer screening, but in a very different way. I don't think anyone ever wants to go get a colonoscopy. So <laughs> No, I'm... I'm overdue, so <laughs> I'm thinking I'll see you after the show about that home test. <laughs> so is that what, what you guys mentioned? You said, you know, the importance of preventive care, too. Are you guys seeing that pop up a lot with now that people are actually still kind of going to the doctor? But if they aren't, it's really it's really showcasing, you know, you need to be healthy all the time. Is that what you're seeing as well? So that was even pre-COVID. Uh, I, I, I think you can tell people to eat healthy things and try to teach them how to how to eat or how to exercise and the importance of actually living a healthy lifestyle. And we live in a world that makes it really easy to not be healthy. Right. Uh, and, and COVID, I think, has magnified that. Mm -hmm. um, so can you guys, this is kind of a broad question, explain what problems COVID has presented for, what have you guys seen with your patients? Yeah, I think the, the obvious ones are the physical things, being sick with COVID itself. Um, the thing that's being more recognized now is isolation, loneliness. Um, talking about a, kind of a whole community-based level, though, we have a, a whole generation of kids that are probably one to two years behind learning, and that's going to impact their trajectory of learning, probably their earning potential, and that's going to have an impact on their whole family's kind of ability to go up to try to reach the American dream. Right. If you don't have education, it's going to be very hard to do that. That's one big factor. Yeah. So, so, yeah, to expand on the isolation, certainly uh, in those living in, like, assisted living and nursing homes, uh, I have I have patients that literally I'm the only person they have left their house to come see in the last 18, or it's been better the last few months, but for a while, I was the only person they came to leave because they couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, on, yeah. Sorry, on, on that point, I had a patient come in and see me, and she goes, I have not hugged a person in eight months. Aww. And I told her, you need to go find your family and go hug them because the risk-benefit ratio for that is you need to go hug somebody. Right. Yeah, so people are really um, scared, really withdrawn, and that's a big problem. And then it's a balance between families. So you have, I, I see a lot of families splintering around this where some will be very pro-vaccine, some the other part of the family will be anti-vaccine or, or whatever, and families don't want to get together because of the fear of COVID or spreading COVID and... Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see how families yes, return. And I've, I've had um, some of my friends experience that already with some split in the family and, mm -hmm. you know, some disagreement about what's coming up with the holidays because some, some have been vaccinated, some don't, don't believe in that. And so to touch on the vaccine quickly, and you brought that up, um, I think that there's, uh, it's always been there, but I think it's grown, the mistrust of the medical field and, you know, what are they not telling us or is the information accurate? Um, you can Google anything you want, right? <laughs> you can get someone to support either side with a lot of facts and what seems to be a lot of credibility. So, you know, how do you get your patients to trust you and how do you reassure them that, um, you know, this medicine can help and the vaccine can help, or just in general, you should you should come in and be and be seen. Like, how do you build that trust with your patients in today's world, especially? So, so personally, I think a lot of the mistrust just comes from media. So, when you take 
one group of people, doctors or healthcare, believe this, it makes it a very black and white situation, but it, actually one-on-one with a patient is never black and white. We live in a world where uh, we're trying to ba- make good decisions on very nebulous things and, and incomplete data. Like, we don't know the end. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the end of COVID really is going to look like. We don't know all the outcomes of a vaccine necessarily. We don't know the outcomes of uh, how good ivermectin could be for you. (laughs) All we have is, like, the available data. And so if I can present that in a reasonable way to someone, and uh, so you you take all this data and you pair it with a person that has their own personal wants and beliefs, and I I think doing that in a non-judgmental way where – like if a person makes a decision not to do something, like that's ultimately their decision. Um, I mean, I, I take care of a lot of diabetic patients that drink a lot of soda, and I take care of people <laughs> with lung cancer that right. smoke. Uh, I, I, I mean, people do stuff that just because I may not agree with it doesn't mean anything, really. Yeah, right. do, do you ever just ask your patients, hey, can you just stop Googling and, and call <laughs> our office? <laughs> or, you know, I, I've talk certainly to told us. people just like, Stop watching the news, uh, yeah. at least for mental health. Like, like, stop watching the news. Yeah. yeah, actually, if you look at the data, watching the news is a stressor. Social media is actually a stressor. Um, but back to the Google thing, I don't mind when patients challenge me because mm. if they can engage and we can have a conversation and talk about data and facts, it's going to be much more likely to get some kind of consensus between right. us versus them being scared to admit they have some concerns, not telling me, and then not asking me and then just doing what they want to do. So the research part is fine, but maybe having then the conversation with you versus just the self-diagnosis and, you know, going down a path that may or may not apply to them. Yeah, I, I think it's great. If people are more, if patients are more engaged in their care, mm-hmm. I think they have better care, they have better outcomes. Um, and then they ask, like, you know, what do you think? And I think what Peter's kind of alluding to, what's great is there's news sources, there's weird websites, but when you're talking to a patient, there's a personal relationship, they know you, and then also you are accountable to them. So there's a different level of trust where if I give them advice and it's bad advice, they're going to come back and see me in six months and say, hey, man, you really misled me. So for me, it's a, it's a, high, it's a higher calling, a higher level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think the patients can feel that. So yeah. Hopefully that works. We've met, Sorry, go ahead, Dr. Nelson. I, I often frame it to patients uh, like we're kind of like a really bad law movie where like, we don't have the smoking gun. We, uh, we're trying yep. to build a case for something. And in every decision in medicine, like we're trying to build a case. There's very few things that are truly, absolutely known. Like if you get a broken hip, you should go to the hospital. That, right. that I think is known. But everything else, there's, I, I don't know, we, we live in gray zones. So. Right, yeah. And we've talked a few times already about how mental health is so important during COVID. And it's kind of funny that in a global pandemic, we're worried about mental health. So how is this one of the greatest threats from COVID? So, so personally, every single day, every single patient basically has stress, depression, or anxiety that I see. Uh, and, and then how that manifests into poor sleep, poor eating habits, poor relationships with their families, uh, showing up to work uh, stressed out of their minds, and mm-hmm. I can't imagine doing a great job if I'm really stressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, just the ramifications of stress, uh, spider webs throughout their life. Yeah, I think stress is really important because you look at people focus on um, overall health. They focus on things like diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk about sleep and stress. If you have chronic low-level stress, blood pressure's up, sugars are up, you typically gain weight, you sleep poorly, you're tired. has a huge negative impact on your overall health. So stress is kind of under-recognized, but really, really important. 
Do you think we'll be able to recover from this or will we be permanently damaged from the mental health COVID aspect? I guess the fact Sorry, that, bomb dropped. <laughs> I mean, to me, the fact that there's been pandemics before and I have, I don't think I have ramifications of the Spanish flu 100 something years ago. True. Uh, so maybe not in my lifetime, but in a long enough timeline, the people will get over it. Yeah. Yeah, I think kids especially are very resilient. Like I, I remember at the beginning with the mass, everyone was like, how can our kids deal with mass? The kids don't care. Right. Not at all. They, they do great with mass. Who, who does not do well with mass are us, the yeah. adults. Right. We all fight about it and stuff. Um, so I'm not too worried about the younger generation uh, in that regard. And as, as this, we've been living through this for 18, 21 months, we've talked how lifestyle and habit changes are, are everywhere. So how exactly... Is this affecting people at home who are working from home now, who are remote constantly? How is that? What are you guys seeing from that? So I see several things. One, uh, the really proliferation of Grubhub or, or uh, meal yeah. do- DoorDash or any yep. of these uh, meal delivery. On our street uh, every day. And they're not delivering like farm fresh produce. <laughs> uh, they're, they're delivering fast food, if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Just the ease of getting pretty much unhealthy food uh, has proliferated. And then the issue of our, certainly my house, none of our houses were really designed to be working, work from. So we don't have proper desks. We don't have proper rooms. We can shut ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Our kids are, we're also home uh, being schooled at the same time. So I'm sp- somehow supposed to be at home working, but also taking care of kids. Uh, and then I leave my office room which is probably my uh dining room table right and now i'm in the kitchen i'm supposed to be like a parent while i like i'm still in work mode right i, I have a great doordash story um my, a friend of mine works for doordash and so you get you know you have the app on the phone to tell um so you text the guy who's gonna you're gonna give the food to and the guy says okay text me when you're close by my house i'll meet you so he went to the restaurant, and then he realized the restaurant is like 50 feet away from this guy's house. No Oh, my gosh. So way. he picked up the food, started walking, texted him on the way. The guy came out, and he basically walked 25 feet. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> the, you're eating bad food. What? You're not exercising at all. You're probably not changing your clothes. There, there's a whole bunch of factors here. Yeah. Wow. That's, I have heard of close dash stories, but that is the absolute closest. So <laughs> get the prize for that story. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think we all experience that. Uh, on some levels, right? I mean, we worked from home. It wasn't for a really long time. Thankfully, we were able to come come back within really um, 45 days or so, start to come back into our mm-hmm. office, which is much sooner than some of the clients and carrier partners that we work with, some um, who are still working remotely. Um, but I did what you said. I had a setup at my kitchen table, and then I came in the office, and I got my stand-up desk, and then my back hurt, and then my chair wasn't right, and my lighting wasn't right, and I was like, ah. And my kids were home trying to finish their senior year, and it was very, very, very stressful um, and different, right? And so over time, you start to get a new normal, which might be this constant level of, you know, low-level stress that you mentioned. Um, so, you know, if you were an RC, you know, what would you tell employers they could do to help support their remote workforce? Um, or those that are even working, you know, part-time at home and part-time in the office, which is also a stressor, right? Work environment changes, you know, every other day. Yeah, I think one big thing uh, for me, when it really kind of slowed down, I was, I got into like really good shape because you take all the commute time and you can actually exercise more. Mm -hmm. So 
I think if people would take the time they save on commuting and prepping for like getting dressed up and makeup, whatever you have to do, to do more exercise, more sleep, more, you know, personal reading, I think you'd be way more personally healthy. Yeah. And that's a really, you have to be pretty intentional and disciplined mm-hmm. to do that. I think um, one of the things I experienced was more meetings. Mm-hmm. So now <laughs> there isn't any drive time, and so I don't have an hour there and back, and I can have four 30-minute meetings with other people that are now scheduled virtually on my calendar. So um, how, do you, you know, how, do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, just block your time and be intentional about it? What was your trick? Yeah, no, I think you have to have limits. I think Peter and I talked about this in our pre-meeting um, where you, you can't be working 24-7, you can't be available 24-7, and also the one great thing for uh, commuting is you transition from work to home. You can decompress. So when you get right. home, you're not all mad from work, and you can be a, a reasonable person to your family. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of lost because you're transitioning, basically walk, standing up from your kitchen table <laughs> to go to the refrigerator, and then now you're, you're supposed home. to be dad or a parent. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I would have patients, you know, 5 o'clock, all right, go get on your stationary bike for 20 minutes or go outside for a walk. Mm-hmm. You are now commuting home. Uh, like home time doesn't start until that 20 minutes of exercise is, is done. Uh, I, I think to answer your other question of what should employers be doing, uh, employers need to ask themselves, how engaged uh, should I be with someone's uh, diet? So that's if I'm working from home, uh, do I, I, what kind of support would an employee get from their employer? And, or should the employer even play any role in, in food choices? And then also the replication of uh, social time. So uh, culturally, we are becoming unchurched. Uh, so when we think of where do I have social connections, it's at work. So if now that's getting taken away, I'm literally at home twenty four seven. Like, where is my social circle of people? Mm-hmm. And so does do employers need to think creatively that I'm going to offer something to employees that's beyond just social work that right. I'm going to offer social time for employees right. that that's worth it. Yeah. We had a few virtual happy hours. We did. They were fun. Yes. And you and you haven't seen their faces in so long so <laughs> it was it was nice. Yeah. But well, it wasn't the same though no. as being here in person. <laughs> but that takes intention, right? So I mean that, mm-hmm. that that doesn't just happen randomly. So right. when employees and employers do that that I think makes a difference. Yeah. So what were I know we are kind of switching gears to the positives of COVID and self-care, I think is a huge one that people were taking time to those extra 20 minutes, maybe meditate or ride your bike or do a facial. But what other positives are you guys seeing that COVID brought on? I think this connection to uh, health technology. So I've had more patients come in and diagnose themselves with atrial fibrillation from their eye watches than ever before. And correctly? Yeah. 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 It's pretty good. They're pretty good. Huh. So, so I, this connection that how how much of my healthcare has to happen in a twelve by twelve Bubble. white room, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of this can happen remotely through different technologies, and it's only a matter of time until someone truly figures out the secret sauce. And we don't need offices; we don't need half the stuff we have. Yeah, is that? I mean, I would think that would be exciting, but also a little scary. Um, in your professions? I mean, you guys sound like you're embracing it. To me, it's exciting because, like, as a physician, like, I think I'll always have a job. Uh, It would be scary to me if I was pure management of a healthcare system. Mm -hmm. I I think it's really exciting. Uh, A lot of times doctors are scared about, um, I'm going to lose 
money and lose patience and volume. Actually, if you do remotely, you're going to actually gain volume. Um, the other thing, people are scared of AI, artificial intelligence. Right. Um, but what he talked about is uh, for diagnosing skin cancer, if we turn everyone's cell phone into a little camera and shoot pictures, the dermatologist will be flooded with work. Um, same thing with the um, Apple Watches. They're pretty good. They're not great. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of false positives. That means it's going to be more work for me to reassure patients, look at things, and make sure they're really having some type of arrhythmia. So it's probably going to generate more volume, more business. So it's something, something we shouldn't be scared of, something we should totally embrace and try to improve. It, can, it really can only help uh, patient care, I think. Yeah, it, it's just broader access and more information. And like you said before, starting that conversation, it gives a, a place to start and a starting point. So, you know, we have been... Um, here at McGowan Braybender, uh, embracing telehealth and telemedicine, I would say before it was a cool thing to do mm -hmm. in the industry. So uh, many, many years ago, maybe almost 15 years ago, we started a relationship with a company um, at the time called Teladoc, and they were offering uh, virtual visits and our clients and their members were like, that's voodoo. We're not sure how they're going to be able to help me if they can't, you know, see me. Because at that time, there wasn't a virtual, you know, it was just a telephonic. Mm -hmm. And um, as time went on, we know what happened. But we ended up with hundreds of clients and thousands of members using virtual medicine. And I think, you know, initially we had some negative feedback. I, I talked to some of the, the you know, primary care physicians at the time, and they were like, oh, we don't, you know, we're not sure about that. And of course, that's all shifted based on what you just said. So um, what are your thoughts about, I mean, I know you shared a little bit, you know, of what you could see in the future and with dermatology or, you know, getting some readings from an Apple Watch, but, you know, what other things do you see for telemedicine in the future? I mean, we're seeing things like MSK being treated virtually. Like, what else, what else can we do with it? Well, one thing that's already happening is like a remote stroke evaluation. So it'll be a neurologist who actually will look at the patient and the nurse will help them do the physical exam. Then they have the CT scan, then go oh, give TPA or transfer or do something. And that's really important because there's some smaller hospitals that don't have access to high level neurologists or critical care people. Mm -hmm. wow. So if you can get a remote consult from a specialist, that'd wow. be great. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to access, whether it's by geographic location, small rural hospital, or maybe even a poor demographic where they don't have access to primary care. This is going to help patients get in front of the person they need to be in front of and be seen. Yeah, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it that way. So you're talking about going to a clinical setting and being with some kind of a care provider and then having the consult with a specialist in another state or another, oh, yeah. another so, facility. So tele-ICUs already exist. So an ICU doctor will sit in like a air control type room with 20 screens in front of them uh, because in rural hospitals you can't have an ICU doctor in every single hospital. Wow. Uh, all you need is a hospitalist that can put in, you know, certain lines and, and measuring tools. Uh, so they relay all the information to the intensivist. The intensivist can help manage the patient. Uh, so in rural areas, this kind of already exists like wow. that. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. You forget about yeah, that. That's really cool. And I now that you're saying that, my, my brother had received, this is probably... PI, HIPAA, I don't know what's happening here. But um, <laughs> anyway, he was at the VA and there was a TV and sometimes someone would come on there and I'd be like, what is that? And it would be the doctor. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even thinking that was a virtual visit. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where that person, I think they were in Philadelphia or something and he was right here in Dayton. So well, I hadn't even thought about that as being a telehealth visit. So, so when I worked up in New Hampshire, uh, the VA in Vermont, Vermont's very rural. Uh, and so uh, everyone lives three hours away, essentially. 
so the cardiologist did the same thing. There's nurses with uh, telestethoscopes, so the nurse could put the stethoscope on the patient three hours away. The cardiologist could listen. Wow. They had teleechoes, so you could see the ultrasound of the heart from three hours away. Um, so, Yay, no technology. Yeah. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so if you expand that to, all right, Dayton, we're probably not, we don't need that. We have plenty of cardiologists for the most part, but there's a lot of other. <laughs> we have too many we cardiologists. <laughs> that's, that's been proven. But all the other specialties we don't. We don't have endocrine really a lot of. We don't have a lot of rheumatology and a lot of these other subspecialties. And so uh, as Dayton's healthcare in a whole, should we really be recruiting rheumatologists or should we figuring out that, oh, I could have tele-rheumatology from Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic or like, that sounds awesome. Like, I would do that. That's one of the fears, though. Doctors in radiology, what they, what's happened is they'll have some guys in Australia read a whole bunch of films, and the radiologists are scared that they're going to be out of business. But the bottom line is our population in the world is growing incredibly fast. Everyone's getting older. Everyone's getting sicker, so there's more studies. So there's a ton of work to be done. So I don't think that's going to blo- you know, cut down the amount of, of need. Um, another interesting aspect is there's some, I don't know if you heard this thing called Marty. No. no. Marty is a two-way a translation. So I, I speak one language, English. So if I have any other language that I need, and half nurses, almost no nurses speak any other language, so mm-hmm. we actually log on to Marty, and we say we need Vietnamese, French, whatever. They'll find a translator, and then through this, basically it's like an iPad-type device, you'll talk to the translator, patient will talk, and they'll translate for you. And that makes a huge difference. Instead of drawing pictures and having no idea what the level of communication is, you're actually very confident that the message is getting across. Wow. That's so awesome. Is that something that's used broadly, or is that very unique to your, to your network? Uh, well, it's pretty, diver- it's pretty widespread in our network. We have it in the hospital and in the clinic. I don't know how much that's gone outside of our network. Yeah. Wow, that's very cool. We <laughs> do have so many languages that our employers have represented inside their workforce. It's certainly a lot nicer. I mean, in med school, we had the device where it's just basically a phone and you'd carry this big phone contraption into the uh, room and you'd yeah. plug it into the wall and then some voice from somewhere was speaking Spanish for you. But uh, uh, yeah, so the video is much, much nicer. And this is kind of, I like how we're getting into this topic here because in my intro, I said how we're in this patient satisfaction, mm-hmm. consumer experience age. So how is telemedicine affecting you know, the relationship between the doctor and the patient. Are you seeing they are happy with the telemedicine advances? Are you not getting to connect as much? Or what kind of things are you seeing? So this is going to be painted with a broad stroke. I think it (laughs) depends on the age, honestly. So I think... That's really ageist. Yeah, (laughs) it's going to be ageist. Uh, So I only see adults, but I would say the 20 to 60-year-olds really don't mind it at all, and they really love it because they can pop out to the parking lot at work and do it from their car. I like it. Yeah, As a 27-year-old, yeah. Uh, I like it. I won't say my age. My 70, (laughs) 80, 90-year-olds, like, they just want to see someone, Mm -hmm. and they probably should see someone. They have a lot of stuff going on, but I think people love it, And, and half of what I do, I don't need to touch the patient. Like, 80% of the visits, I don't. It doesn't provide value of me actually listening to their heart or those kinds of things. It's really just talking. Yeah. So why do they need to be in the same room as me to do that? Yeah, I, I think for patient satisfaction, what patients want is access and time. Mm-hmm. So it, whatever you get at telephone, video conference, or in person, that's going to make them happy. Mm-hmm. So I, I routinely give out my email and cell phone number to patients. So a lot of times they'll just text me like, I'm, I, is this medication or supplement okay or 
can I do this? And just the fact that they can have me as a security blanket makes them feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. So they're much happier with their care. Um, and then some people, like what Peter said, it really depends. The younger generation, they're more than happy to I mean, just FaceTime you yeah. and just uh, spend five minutes with you. Right. Yeah. I, I use my chart. Love it. I sprained my ankle a few weeks ago and I messaged my doctor and she's like, yeah, come on in. We'll get you an x-ray. And I was like, this was so easy. Yeah. And I was panicking. And I was like, do I call someone? Do I go to the ER? Do I? Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. so nice. So, so that's the shift where we need a compensation that allows for that. So in the right. old fee-for-service world, right? that my chart message was a great free thing your doctor did for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, I, I don't bill for that. And I, and I happily do those. But uh, if we want a world where access like that is what we want, which I think is a good thing, mm-hmm. how, how do we think about how we pay physicians. Right. And I, that's a really big deal because I mean, you have to get paid for your services. The old, I'll call it the old model where it's fee for service is really not congruent with what, what's happening with this new access and patient experience. So as we talk about this consumer and patient experience, which is becoming more and more important, I think not only to this generation that's coming up uh, because it's what they grew up with, it's what they expect. Um, but also everyone else, I think, has kind of gotten on the bandwagon with that, too. They want to have a great experience everywhere they go, even if that's seeking health care. So do you think the change is permanent here with our with the, the way you're delivering care? And can the payment system catch up? I mean, is there anything that, that you know about that? Well, I, I think it's here to stay telemedicine and, and phone medicine. As far as payment models, if as we try to for the 20th year in a row, move to ACO population health. <laughs> if we actually did that, then everything we do to communicate with the patient, to keep them out of the ER, stop wasting tests, will be you know to everyone's benefit. Yes. So I think more access, more communication is going to be better. And what Peter is saying is totally true. Like when people call me on my cell phone, I can't bill for that. I'm making decisions, so I'm liable for the risk. I'm not being compensated. But if we put that into a big package saying, we have to take care of everyone in Dayton for X amount of dollars, and if you can do it for cheaper, then we can get some bonuses back for the healthcare system and for the docs. Right. Then I think it's going to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And patients will be happier. Mm. More access, less testing, right. better Well, care. I mean, if you think of other professionals, um, you know, attorneys, accountants, they bill for their time. Mm-hmm. They do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it should be any different in the healthcare space. It's just that the payment model was built a certain way where patients come in, I see you, I bill for a service, you leave. Right. And um, we've evolved from there. And, and the... Compensation hasn't always necessarily followed the best health for the patient. So mm-hmm. counseling someone on smoking cessation is not the most lucrative field. Right, but it's uh, super uh, important. But taking mm-hmm. out their lung when they have lung cancer is a pretty great yeah. job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So is there specialty telehealth? I know we hinted at cardiologist mm-hmm. internal medicine. What, what other things are coming out with these specialty phone reviews I guess what's the word I'm looking for consultations consultations there we go (laughs) so so, I mean when you talk about ACOs or value-based medicine or whatever uh, I I mean the joke from the east coast was like the midwest is like 10 or 15 years behind right so that's (laughs) where we're talking about hey how long have you lived here now (laughs) (laughs) only five yeah okay you can still tell the joke yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, five more and you're done but but when you look at like what people are doing in Boston where it is much more uh, value-based uh I mean, that's where you're getting ideas of hospitalizations at home. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you don't need to be in a hospital, but we can provide the same care from your own house, the, the biggest 
bill is the room fee. Right, right. <laughs> so, so why don't we do that? Mm-hmm. Th- those are the changes that will keep coming. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's, that's also crazy to think about. It's not, you know, we, we spend a lot of time reading. We spend a lot of time meeting with your folks and talking and with our clients. And you have said several things here today that have made me go, wow, I had not thought about that. Mm-hmm. Hospitalization at home. And there's one last thing I wanted to talk about, which we had addressed on our pre-call. It was the work-life balance and how KHN is helping address these problems. And when we hit on the employer part of it, but how can employees maintain this work-life balance and stay healthier? Do you have any tips? So so to me, uh, I think truly take 10 minutes out of your life and prioritize what What's important in your life? Mm-hmm. So, so imagine your life when you're 85 years old. And what do you want that life to be like? And then look at your week coming up and say, are the things I'm doing in my day-to-day life helping me to be that 85-year-old? And that might relate to your job. That might relate to what you're eating. That might relate to your relationships or whatever. But, but truly reflecting on if that's what I want to be when I'm 85, someone getting on airplanes, flying all over, doing jumping jacks, swimming, Mm -hmm. uh, picking up my grandkids. Like, everyone wants that life. Uh, And and so how do I actually build that into my own life? And and is my employer helping me with that or hurting me with that? And how do I interact with my employer through that? Mm -hmm. That's difficult. That's great advice, yeah. Yeah, how much time do we have left? I think this is probably our last <laughs> question here. Wow. That, that topic could be everything from priorities to like the concept of ikigai, which is mm-hmm. what is your purpose, meaning in life. From the flip side, from the pl- employer side, mm-hmm. uh, I think what people need to think about is not short-term but long-term because everyone wants to get the max amount of output per employee, per dollar spent. But you actually get more output if the worker has time to rest and recover. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big runner one of the things they stress in long-distance running is you have to rest and recover. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't do that, you cannot perform when you want to push yourself. Mm -hmm. So you may be running like 60 miles a week, but they go, what they really stress is your recovery days, you cannot push it, you have to take it easy, and you should probably have one day a week where you don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do that, actually your performance improves. If you're killing yourself all the time at work, remotely at home or in the office, you're going to flame out at some point, and then we got to replace you, retrain someone, uh, take your place, and then the whole company organization is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. taking care of the workers um, actually improves your long-term performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we've, we've seen that in some some small spaces. I mean, you, you see it on a much global, much more global basis clinically. Um, and, and just as an example, McGo and Braybender went to a, um, you know, unlimited paid time off. And, you know, it's we've, amazing. We've heard do, do you some, guys have any openings? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> we've, uh, we've heard some, some things on the negative side out there in the research saying, well, people won't take the time off because now, you know, they, they don't really understand where to stop and start. And we've really made a conscious effort to say, no, take, take the time mm-hmm. off. You know, as long mm-hmm. as you're getting your work done, take the time off. And so that unlimited PTO allows people to take a day here or there or take a long weekend or, you know, take two weeks of vacation instead of one with their family when they can. And I think that... Um, has really reduced some of the stress um, you know, I, inside our workforce. I think that's a challenge with COVID because I've even been thinking, all right, if I get COVID, I have to take two weeks off work. I don't have sick time. I don't really want to take a two-week vacation. Mm-hmm. If I have mild COVID, I'm just hanging out at home. Right. right. Uh, so how do companies think about their sick time, PTO, even in the next five years if with COVID and those kinds of things? Uh, 
so that's true. a challenging question. Yeah. The, the unlimited uh, uh, pay time off thing is awesome because if you are thinking at if you're at work and you're like, I really wish I was um, spending time with my wife on our anniversary, mm-hmm. but I didn't take the day off. You're so unproductive. Right. Yep. And plus, you're not fun to be around. So you're actually dragging everyone else down. Right. You should mm-hmm. just leave. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that, ma- that makes great sense. Yeah. We're Mental health nice. days. That's right. Yep. Woo Well, Dr. Nelson, Dr. Han, thank you both so much for this conversation. We really enjoyed it. And um, to our listeners, if you have any topics or suggestions, feel free to email me at Kenzie at healthierbirthdays.com. Or you can email me at Ann at healthierbirthdays.com. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, We will see you next time. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.